All right, well, good morning again, and welcome again. Glad you guys are here today. Uh, we're continuing our series on the prophets this morning, and we're about halfway through the series. We've got about six weeks left, and there is a lot of good stuff to come. But for the past four weeks, for the past first half of this series, we've been looking at this huge theme of judgment in the prophets, how Israel broke their covenant with God, how they were unfaithful in the areas of idolatry, injustice, flawed leadership, and empty uh, ritualistic religion. And we've seen this picture of a people who have completely turned away from the heart of God. Uh, in Jeremiah 5, in the years leading up to the exile, as Israel falls into spiritual and national decline, God gives the prophet Jeremiah kind of a strange task. He tells him to go up and down the streets of Jerusalem and to find one righteous person. He says, go look in the shops and the marketplaces, the bars and the restaurants, the gyms and the basketball courts. Look everywhere and find me just one person who is honest, who is upright. And if you can find that one person in the whole city, then I will relent in my judgment. I'll forgive Israel. But of course, Jeremiah looks, he looks up and down the streets, up all over the city, and he finds no one. And so as we've talked about, this judgment would come to pass. And you know, this is kind of a weird little story, and it's probably a little bit of hyperbole, but it gives us a sense and it communicates this idea that we've been building towards for the last several weeks, that Israel has completely and totally lost their way. And this all leads us to an interesting question. What will God do next? How will God respond to Israel's failure? A couple months ago, I got a chance to get back to one of my absolute favorite hobbies in the world, uh, playing basketball. For the past 15 years, uh, pretty much every week, I've played ball down the street at the Church of the Nazarene with uh, many people who, who go to this church. But of course, because of the pandemic, uh, we weren't able to play. And so I went about 18 months, a year and a half, without playing basketball. And so when we got the okay to start playing again, when we felt like it was safe, when they felt like it was safe, um, I was sort of excited, but I was mostly nervous and pretty hesitant. You know, I hadn't picked up a basketball in 18 months. So I was a year and a half older, a year and a half less athletic, a year and a half closer to my impending basketball retirement. And so I went in kind of expecting a little bit of rust. I had, you know, kind of realistic expectations. But I was not prepared for how bad I was. I honestly think that first night I went back, I didn't make one shot. And that's not because I was timid and I wasn't shooting at all. I shot plenty, but I just missed everything. I missed layups, I missed three-pointers, I missed mid-range shots, I missed every kind of shot you could possibly take. And I kept on shooting because I figured, well, I'll work my way out of it. But I didn't. It was so bad. 
And when you're going through that, you, you kind of have to wonder a little bit, like at what point are my teammates just going to give up on me? At what point are they going to stop passing me the ball, kind of freeze me out, and just shoot it themselves? You know, they might have memories of me being a decent basketball player. They might have memories of me making shots years ago. But if I just keep missing over and over again, at some point, you know, just the smart thing to do is to look elsewhere. Now, fortunately, after a couple weeks, I, you know, I, I started to figure it out. I am enjoying it again. I'm not quite ready to join Pastor Eric and the retired old guy basketball club. But for that moment, for that week, there was a, a real question. I could see it in everybody's eyes. Matt will deny it, but I could tell. I could tell he was thinking it. Like, man, maybe, maybe, maybe Brandon's done. Maybe I shouldn't give him the ball anymore. And in a sense, we're at kind of this point in Israel's story. This point where we have to ask the question, is God just done with them? Have they finally failed enough time? Have they finally missed the mark badly enough? That God's just going to say, enough. And based on the past four weeks, based on these passages of judgment and condemnation, you might think that the answer is yes. When we read through these prophetic passages, at times it feels like God is just kind of throwing up his hands like, enough is enough, Israel. I'm just done with the sinfulness. I'm done with the unfaithfulness. And it's not just the words of the prophets. It's the real-life situation that Israel is facing. Their nation has been defeated. Their cities and homes destroyed. They've been taken off into captivity in Babylon. They've been living as prisoners in a foreign country for decades, 50 years. And so you couldn't blame Israel themselves for wondering, has God given up on us? Now, before we go on, let me just say, you might not really think it matters all that much for us, whether God gave up on them or didn't. We are not Israel. Uh, we're not under the old covenant. And I think most of us know that where the story is headed is towards Jesus and towards a new covenant in his death and resurrection. And so I think generally we don't spend a whole lot of time worrying about Israel. It's a bummer for them if they get rejected, but it's not really our problem. But as we've been talking about throughout this entire series, what's at stake here isn't simply what happens to Israel. It's not simply the story. But what we're getting at is the very heart of God. In these passages, in these stories, we get a glimpse of who God is, how he responds to and relates to his people. And I think what's really important for us to rec reconcile or to reckon with is how God responds when his people sin over and over and over again. And so what God does next, what we see in the second half of the prophets tells us so much about who God is, 
and it's meaningful for our relationship with him. It's meaningful for our understanding of the gospel. And so these are important weeks and important passages. And so if you have your Bibles uh, with you, uh, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. And this is the passage we're going to be looking at today. And let me just give you some quick background. Isaiah chapters 1 through 39 are written about the events leading up to uh, the destruction and exile to all this judgment stuff. Israel is writing to his contemporaries and he's warning them about the dangers, the cost of unfaithfulness. He's warning them to turn from their sin. But we know, once again, that Israel doesn't heed his warning. Judgment comes to pass. The Jerusalem is destroyed. The exile happens. And so chapter 40 of Isaiah begins an entirely different section. It has a different feel, a different mood, and a different context. Here Isaiah is no longer writing to his contemporaries. He's not writing about their sin, about the judgment that's taking place. Instead, he's writing to future generations, hundreds of years later, to those who are experiencing judgment, who have experienced the exile. Isaiah is now writing a future prophecy to those who are wondering about these very questions that we brought up this morning. Where do we stand with God? Has he given up to us? And so Isaiah 40 is where God begins to answer these questions. So let's read, uh, beginning in verse 1. The prophet writes, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard, her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it out. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. So in the midst of their struggle and sin, in the midst of this era of brokenness and exile, God has a message of hope and restoration for Israel. And we see this right away as the chapter opens with this simple but powerful word, comfort. 
And this word comfort has really special significance in the context of the exile, in the context of this judgment. In the book of Lamentations, uh, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, they're described as a broken, sinful woman, a widow who has become a slave. And she's pictured uh, in her brokenness, weeping and crying alone. And over and over again, these words are echoed in the opening chapter of Lamentations. There is no one to comfort her. Lamentations 1-2 says, Bitterly she weeps at night, tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, there is no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her, they have become her enemies. Verse 9, her filthiness clung to her skirts. She did not consider her future. Her fall was astounding. There was none to comfort her. And five times in this opening chapter, these exact words are repeated. There is no one to comfort Israel. And so in this context, when God calls on Isaiah to announce comfort to Israel, it's more than just a pat on the back. It's more than just a word of encouragement. It's not just God saying, hey, there, there, things are going to get better one day. God is proclaiming a word of hope, an end of this experience of brokenness and loneliness, hopelessness and despair. He says it, it says with, with tenderness, with love. I will give you the comfort that you've been longing for, the comfort that you couldn't find anywhere. And on one hand, there is kind of an immediate practical reason for this comfort and hope. Because one of the things that Isaiah is doing here is he's announcing the end of the exile. He says, uh, your sins have been paid for, your service complete. Saying, so you guys, you get to go home soon. This is all going to be over. But really, the focus on this passage, the focus of all of Isaiah 40 to 66, isn't just this one event that's going to happen. It's not just this practical thing. It's not just having our problems go away. Isaiah is pointing us to a deeper level of comfort. And genuine comfort is found not in our situation, not in our problems being solved, but in the character of God in the unshakable foundation, the unchanging reality of who he is. Perhaps nothing in this passage would have meant more to Israel than God saying, I am still your God. Notice the opening words of the passage, who he addresses, how he identifies himself. He says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And that might not sound like a super intimate word to us. It might not seem super loving or, or, or super meaningful, but they really are. Because this is the language of the covenant. Throughout the Old Testament, when God is speaking of his relationship with Israel, when he's talking about his bond with them, his closeness with them, his love for them, these are the words he uses. In Exodus 6, when he promises Israel's deliverance from slavery in Egypt, he says, I will free you from being slaves to them, 
and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. And these words really echo throughout the entire Old Testament story. Over and over again, we see these words of relationship and covenant. I will be your God, and you my people. Uh, I've had a special name uh, for my daughter, Kaya, since before she was born. Uh, when Alyssa was pregnant and, you know, we didn't know yet what gender uh, she was going to be, and she was just this little speck on an ultrasound, we started calling her Bug, you know, like a little cute little thing. And it, it, it didn't, we didn't mean for it to stick. We didn't think it was going to be something we would call her for the rest of her life. But it kind of did. And especially in my relationship with her, that name has a lot of meaning. I've called her Bug every day of her life for the past eight and a half years. And it kind of communicates something special. It's not the only thing I call her, but you know, when we're sitting down together, uh, talking about her day, when I pick her up from school and she gives me a hug and I haven't seen her for a long time, when she's sad and, and needs to be consoled, these are the times when I'll say, bug, when I'll call her by this special name. And you know, I hope this never happens. I hope this situation never arises. But if in some point in her life, at some point, she's not sure where she stands with me. She's not sure how I feel about her. Maybe I just haven't seen her in a while, or, or she thinks I'm, I'm upset with her, or something comes up where she's like, man, what's going on with me and dad? If I came to her and gave her a hug and, and, and called her bug, I think she would know. I think she would know immediately that things are good because those are the words of our special connection. And so God announces comfort for Israel and he uses the unmistakable language of their relationship, of their bond with each other. And this would tell Israel so much that this relationship has been renewed and restored that he still wants to be their God. And with that relationship would come all the comfort and hope and blessing of life in his presence. All the comfort that comes with being God's people, of living under his promise. And he paints this, this picture of provision and care under his sovereignty. And you might have noticed these two images in our passage. And they're kind of different contrasting images, but they kind of convey what it means to be God's people and who he is as our God and as their God. It's him as both king and shepherd. In verse 10, we see this very clear king language. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power. He rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. In verse 11, the image shifts the very next verse to God as Israel's shepherd. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. See, God wants his people to know that he is still their king. That despite what they see in the world around them, despite their situation, 
despite the reign of foreign nations and foreign rulers, there might be people in Babylon who are saying, hey, look, our God is better than your God because our king defeated your king. But God speaks into that and he says, there is still only one true God. There is still only one sovereign creator of the universe. But more than that, not only is God a king or the king, he is their king. He has taken Israel under his special care and provision. Like a shepherd, he's leading them and guiding them to places of blessing and peace. He is still leading them to green pastures and still waters. Isaiah brings this all together in the final verses of chapter 40. In verse 28, he writes, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. His understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. See, this isn't just a picture of rescue. It's a picture of restoration. It's not just that he's going to take them out of exile. He is working and moving and exerting his power to make them whole. To give them restoration, to renew their strength and give them the life and purpose that that he's been promising them for centuries. This whole first opening chapter of this section of Isaiah is him saying, look, I am still committed to you. After all this, I'm still committed to my promise. And for the next several weeks, uh, this second half of the series, we're going to talk about how the prophets reveal God's plan for this how God can be faithful to his promise despite his people's continued unfaithfulness, continued sinfulness. And we'll talk about how the prophets are pointing us ahead to this really beautiful picture of the gospel, to Jesus, to a new covenant, to God's spirit being poured out on us. And this is really cool, and and I'm excited about that. But for this morning, I want to draw our attention to One very simple idea. This passage reveals something both very basic and utterly profound about who God is, about his heart. That he has always been and that he always will be a God defined by his grace we see once again that this whole story of God and his people that begins in Genesis and ends in Revelation, that it is about the triumph of God's grace and mercy over judgment. See, as basic as the idea might be, we have to stop and recognize how crazy it is, how unbelievable, how radical it is that Isaiah 40 exists, that passages like this exist. That God would respond to Israel's sin and that his message would be one of comfort and hope. See, think about the context again. 
We've spent the last four weeks, five weeks, talking about Israel's failure, their sin. How they have broken their promise to God in the worst, most offensive way possible, and they have done it over and over and over and over again. And the whole point of all of these judgment passages, the point of these passages that we've been looking at is for us to see without any doubt that Israel deserves judgment. That this punishment, this condemnation is precisely what they agreed to by the terms of the covenant. If the last four weeks maybe seemed a little harsh, maybe you came to church and you listened to these messages and you read these passages and it was like, man, why does God have to be so like intense about this? The language he uses, it's really extreme. Does he have to be so mean about it? And you might have thought, man, like, what's going on with this? Why do the prophets talk about sin this way? And the reason is that the prophets are building a case. In several places, they even use courtroom language. They call upon uh, the earth and the heavens to be witnesses in this courtroom drama. And it's like the prophets are, are bringing up all these, all these pieces of evidence. Exhibit A, idolatry. Exhibit B, injustice. Over here we have Israel's flawed leadership. And don't forget about their empty religion, how they tried to cover up their unrighteousness with ritual and behavior. And all this is building this case towards not a minor infraction. We're not talking about a parking ticket. These are the worst crimes Israel could commit. See, they haven't done the very things they were called to do. They haven't loved God. Instead, they've served and bowed to and lived for other gods. They haven't loved people. Instead, they've oppressed and exploited those who were the most in need of love. They haven't been a light to the nations. Actually, they've dragged God's name through the mud. They are guilty on every account. And so again, according to the agreement that they made with God, according to this covenant, God is completely within his rights to judge and to punish. It's not him being mean. It's not him overreacting. It's not him throwing a temper tantrum. It's not him setting the bar impossibly high. It's him doing exactly what the terms of the covenant said. And one of the things that the prophets want to do, it's not just kicking Israel when they're down. He just wants them to see this reality. That Israel is like a spouse that cheats on you a thousand times. Like a vineyard that produces bad fruit, rotten fruit for centuries. Israel is the teammate who you pass the ball to over and over and over again, and they miss every single shot. So it's not only fair for God to give up on Israel. It's actually logical. It's, it's the practical thing to do. It's a slam-dunk case. 
And so it's amazing. It's crazy. It's unbelievable that God would say, that God would reveal himself to his prophets, and he would say to his people, you know what? I've reached a verdict. I've made my decision. I still love you. I still want to be in relationship with you. I want you to experience my comfort and my blessing and hope. You guys, this is who God is. And it's who he has always been. And it's who he always will be. And we can talk about grace all the time. But I think it's so easy to miss, it's so easy to forget just how deep it goes, just how far beyond our understanding and our logic and what makes sense, how far beyond that his grace goes. And I think sometimes we have, you know, kind of a distorted picture of God and grace. You know, on one hand, we understand the basic principles of the gospel, that we are forgiven because of Jesus, because of the cross, that we're loved. But somewhere in the back of our minds, in the place of our brains that's distorted by sin, that's ruled by human wisdom, we still kind of think about God and we see this kind of twisted version of him, this angry, punishing, wrathful, mean Old Testament God who sees our sin and he's just kind of exasperated. He's just waiting to go off on us. He's so disappointed that we can never quite get it right. And we can end up with a picture of the Christian life that can be so conflicted. We end up living with so much tension because there's like this back and forth tug of war between these feelings of being loved and experiencing grace, but also at times feeling completely unworthy, feeling like such a disappointment, feeling guilt and shame, feeling unlovable. And this becomes a problem because in, in the places in our lives where there is sin, where we do struggle, where there's habitual sin, repeated sin, sin that we just struggle with day after day, week after week, month after month, and these sins maybe lead us into places of struggle and hurt and frustration. And we think to ourselves, maybe this is what I deserve. Maybe God isn't going to help me this time. Maybe I've just got to figure it out on my own. I got myself into this mess. It's on me to get myself out. But the radical reality of grace, it's not just a New Testament idea. It's built into the very character of who God is, is that he doesn't give us what we deserve. He doesn't act or move out of who we are. He acts and moves out of who he is. It's why in Romans 5, the Apostle Paul can say that when we were powerless, while we were still sinners, 
That's when Christ died for us. See, here's the beautiful thing, you guys. It's not that Jesus came to change God's mind about us. It's not that Jesus came so that God could show his grace. Jesus came because God had already made up his mind about us. Jesus came because God decided to show us grace. The exile gives us a picture of how deep this truth goes, how deep this grace goes. That it's not just the small sins that, you know, we manage, the kind of acceptable sins that, you know, we talk about in our small groups and we share with our friends. It's the the deep, offensive sins that actually hurt the heart of God. It's the sins that deserve a big, fat, guilty verdict. The sins that lead us to places of slavery and bondage, to hopelessness and fear and doubt. It's those sins that God speaks his word of grace and comfort to us. That God wants to speak relationship. That God wants to speak his grace. It's those sins that God responds to and he says, you're still my people. I still love you. I still want to bless you. I still want to lead you out of your brokenness and restore you. I want to be your king. I want to be your shepherd. I want you to live under the good blessing of my presence. And so for the next several weeks, we're going to see how God, in his sovereignty, in his goodness, in his grace, how he lays out this perfect plan for redemption. How he lays out this perfect plan for restoration. And as we do this, as we look at this plan, as we move our way towards Jesus, we have to keep this idea in mind that he is doing this for these same people who we've been talking about, the idolaters, the unjust, these broken, selfish leaders, people who just are going through the motions. He's building his plan of redemption for them. And he's building his plan of redemption for us. We want to recognize that this is who God is. This God of amazing grace and comfort. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for who you are. That your grace isn't just an action. It's it's built into your unchanging, unshakable character. That we can count on you to love us, for you to forgive, for you to redeem. Because it's who you are. I pray that we would see you and see ourselves in light of this truth in light of your grace. That more than anything else, you want to love us, you want to bless us, you want us to experience the good life in your presence. 
and that judgment doesn't have the final word. Judgment is not an end. But God, you want us to experience comfort and hope. So God, as we worship you this morning, I pray that you would just fill this space with an experience of true comfort. Not just a feeling, not just a hope that our situation would change, but a knowledge, a confidence of faith in who you are. We love you. We praise you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.